Please turn also to the Old Testament, to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. The text for this morning is Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 13 through 18. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 13 through 18. This is God's holy word. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father, for your generous provision to your people. We thank you that you indeed are sovereign over all things, that you do whatever you please, that no one can stay, say to you, no one can hold back your hand and say to you, what have you done? Father, we thank you that your ways are perfect, that you make all things beautiful in their time. Father, we thank you that you give us good days, that you give us bad days also, that the days of adversity. Help us to receive both from your hand with thanksgiving, with joy. Father, we pray that we might consider it pure joy when we face trials and testing of all kinds. Father, we acknowledge that it is needed in order that we might be mature and lack nothing. Father, we thank you for you are with us, especially during those difficult times, that you prove yourself faithful. Father, we pray that the good news of the gospel would go forward. We pray that your people would be encouraged even during dark days such as these, that we might look to you for our comfort and our joy. We pray, Father, if any are here who do not know Jesus Christ, we pray that you might do a mighty work of transformation. Father, we pray that your Son would be exalted, that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Oftentimes, the biblical teaching is often coupled in common language, or there is a secular understanding of biblical truth uh, without all of the biblical truth there. One such example is that of believing in a fate. So, uh, non-Christians... People who are secular will believe there is such a thing as a destiny, as a fate. Yet, 
they never believe that this fate is controlled by a personal, loving, holy, and a wise God. So they believe that there's somehow a plan that's going through, and it can't be changed, and it's impersonal, and it has nothing to do with a loving and a gracious God. When you separate those two, then fate indeed seems painful and cruel. Yet, you want to understand that any time we talk about God who is in control of all things, it is never separated from the personal God, the loving God, the holy God, the wise God, the just God. That when we separate His control of every detail of our lives, and we separate that from His love, and we separate that from, from, uh, from His wisdom, then we're going to get pain. Because we can't see it. We don't know it. And to think that if I don't understand it, if you don't understand it, then it must not be wise. If we don't understand it, it must not be holy. And here, we think about what God has made crooked, man attempts to make straight. How do we come to terms with what God has done in our lives? Oftentimes, we tend to think, God, let me tell you all the things that you have done wrong around me, and you ought to fix them. Let me bring grief to you, God, about how my life is so filled with imperfection. But instead, what we ought to say is, God, you've made these things according to your perfect plan. Help me to see the good that you've brought into my life, instead of cursing you for the things that I think you've done wrong. May you and I be convicted that God is not one who ever needs a rebuke. He never needs correction. No one can say, hey, why did your hand do this? May I slap your hand, God, and fix what you've done. Here in the passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, the finishing from chapter 6, the last verse. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life. In the earlier part of Ecclesiastes chapter 7, that the author Kohelet is explaining what is good. So he gives many descriptions about what is good. And then in today's passage, chapter 7 verses 13 to 18, he gives the explanation, perhaps uh, returning again, that, that the sovereignty of God, God's providence, is a theme that often is brought up in this book of Ecclesiastes. They're going, he's going back again to this, to this understanding that God is in control of everything. And that what he made is good. And it's good despite what we think it to be. So we see in today's passage, Ecclesiastes 7, 7 verses 13 to 18. Your proper response to God's sovereignty is to trust in Him wholeheartedly. Rejoice always and obey His word steadfastly. Your proper response to God's sovereignty is to trust in Him wholeheartedly. Rejoice always and obey His word steadfastly. We'll look at this in two points. The first, the truth of God's sovereignty. And the second, two extreme responses to God's sovereignty. So the first point, the truth of God's sovereignty in verses 13 through 15. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? In the day of prosperity be joyful. 
And in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. So here, we learn about the truth of God's sovereignty. Begins in verse 13, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Here, may we not come to the wrong understanding about God making things crooked. This is not God making things perverse, not God making things immoral. He never does that. At the end of this chapter, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 29, perhaps the author is even answering that concern. Wait a minute. You ought not to forget that God made man upright, but man went in search of many schemes. The Adam and Eve were created upright. They weren't created with sin. They chose sin. They chose rebellion. So it's not here what God has made evil and man attempts to make good. It's what God has made in a certain way that we consider wrong, that we consider less than ideal. We can come up with all kinds of of, uh, examples of what appears to be crooked. Whether it be the, the days that we face today, the difficulties in our lives, the birth defects, tragic ones, degenerative diseases, learning disabilities, broken marriages and families, and the list goes on. The idea being presented here, who can make straight what God has made crooked? In other words, who can overrule or who can thwart or who can undo what God in His perfect wisdom does? In Daniel, after a time of humbling, of eating grass that this King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4.34, he admits, For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or to say to him, What have you done? So the idea of God having to answer to someone, that God has, someone can come in here and say, hey God, you have to answer to me. The answer is, God answers to nobody. There's no one above Him. He he can't be overruled. He can't be vetoed by anyone because we're all creation and He is Creator. So part of this sovereignty explains how God, His kingdom rules over all. In Psalm 103, His kingdom rules over His overall. That there is nothing outside of His reign. And there is nobody above Him. That He doesn't have to answer for His actions to anybody. And that no one can hold back His hand and, and say, stop that. When you think about the various kings, <clears throat> kings who have absolute power, 
servants of kings who wield swords. And that when there is trouble, that the king holds up his hand, and his servant who's, who's ready to, to slay the one who has cursed the king, he stops because he realizes the king has lifted his hand. I must stop. I must obey. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, the Apostle Paul writes, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God is the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Not some of the things, not most of the things, not just the most important things in life and the little details, they fall where they are. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. In Acts chapter 17, when the Apostle Paul is there in Athens, if there's any group that can be considered Gentile, then it must be the Greeks. Because oftentimes it's even stated, Jews and Gentiles, or Jews and Greeks, that if there's anyone who's not a Jew, it's a Greek. And yet, here, the Apostle Paul, when he's preaching to these Gentiles, he doesn't hold back the truth about how in God He gives us life and breath and all things. That all these things God gives us. That if He were to take it back, our hearts would stop completely. That our lungs wouldn't function if He said, no, this person's life is done. His lungs won't breathe anymore. Boom. Life and breath are gone. And we think about this matter of crooked. And being unable to make things straight. Being unable to thwart God's hand. And perhaps, however hard you try, you come to terms with the fact that you can't change what God does. You can't overrule it. You can't undo it. And in many ways, this is a test. This is a test of what not you really believe your theology. That God, you are in charge. And you control every detail. That not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from your will. And you are worth far more than many sparrows. Do you really believe that theology? Do you believe this? Perhaps the crooked things in life are there for you to ask that question. Do I really believe that God, you are in control of all these things? Can God, can you make all things beautiful in their time? Then verse 14, good days and bad days, all from God. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may, find, may not find out anything that will be after him. So we have the obvious. The days of prosperity... Be joyful. But I hope you can see that Kohelet here is saying the same thing about the days of adversity. So in the days of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. I think what he's concluding there is 
You want to be joyful in days of prosperity. You want to be joyful in days of adversity. Because they both come from God. The attitude that Nathaniel had. Think back to John chapter 1. Nathaniel makes this statement. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's as if, you know, from over here, we might think, anything good come out of Nazareth? It's like saying, can anything good come out of Wisconsin? Right? Nothing good can come from Wisconsin, from Minnesota. Of course not. But here, this is, this is the thinking that man has. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, you can if God desires good to come from Nazareth because we have Jesus, the Son of God. Can anything good come out of a bad day? And if anyone can determine that, it is the Almighty God. Perhaps you're wondering, what are the purposes of bad days? Why are they even here? We ought to be joyful in these bad days because God has given them to us. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You want to know how safe your car is? Well, it doesn't te- it's not a good test if you're driving in 70 degree weather on a dry asphalt, right, with uh, the sun shining. But you know that how your, your car is safe when you're driving in the rain, when you're driving in the cold, when all the conditions are horrifically bad. That God is one who shows himself faithful to you and to me on those bad days. There's, there's nothing like prosperity to draw out our vices. When things are exceedingly good, oftentimes, that is when man falls. And there's nothing like adversity. There's nothing like difficulty that comes into your life that refines you so that the virtue is brought out. You understand that? This is why in Proverbs, that one man says, Give me neither wealth, give me neither prosperity, so that I might become proud and deny you. There's an understanding. When everything is good, we start to think, God, we, do, we just don't need you. We're getting by on our own. Why do I need to pray? And then at the same time, he asks, well, don't give me such poverty that I steal and shame you. And here, we ought to understand that God, in our difficulties, we're not sure where our next meal is coming from. Isn't it then that we're going to pray and ask Him for our daily bread? And it's only then that we will pray and ask God, Hey, I don't know where my next meal is coming from. Will you give it to me, please? Yet He tells us to pray it anyway. Because however that meal comes... We might think, well, I have money in the bank. I go to the store to buy food. What's the big deal? Well, that's part of God's provision. And we think, well, I did it. I put the food there. Is God God being forgotten in 
the common goodness? Are we taking Him for granted? You think about the bad days. Think about the bad days. We read earlier in 2 Corinthians 12 about how God had provided the Apostle Paul with these visions. And the Apostle Paul says, so as to keep him from conceit that God gave him this thorn in the flesh. It's, it's a, uh, it's a metaphor, figure of speech. It's, thorn, it's, it's not a literal thorn. It's something that troubled him. <clears throat> but we're told God gave it to him to humble him so that he would not be conceited, so he would not fall in his pride. And so there, oftentimes, God gives the bad day, God gives the difficulties so that he protects us from sin. He humbles us to protect us from, from falling. And in that regard, we can say that it is mercy from God to receive bad days. The proper attitude expressed by Job, chapter 2, verse 10, when his wife is giving him horrific advice. Our children have died, you're suffering, why don't you just curse God and have him kill you? And he says, shall we receive good from God and not evil? Shall we receive good from God and not that which is what we consider bad? We ought to receive both and rejoice. In the days that are dark, in the difficult days, remember that you and I should never be envious of the wicked when they prosper. In Psalm 73, this is what the psalmist describes at the beginning of the psalm, that he says he almost stumbles, that he, he looks and sees that the wicked seem to have very little trouble. And that's part of our difficulty is we look and we see and we assume. We don't see everything that there is. That we ought to gather from this that we ought to trust in God especially when the righteous suffer the worst calamities. It's easy for you and I to come to this conclusion. When God brings difficulty into our lives that we start thinking, we start saying, God, I don't deserve this. You've got the wrong person. God never gets the wrong person. Oh, sorry, the address, it was supposed to be 1529. Uh, I got 1629, I'm sorry, I got the wrong address. God never does that. It's never the wrong person. You are the right person. Difficulties come. We trust in Him. In verse 15, the author then comes back with this challenge. It's a conundrum. Verse 15, In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. <clears throat> so, perhaps we have some assumptions the first one is that God is sovereign over everything that happens. That's, that's part of our text. That two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father. 
The second idea is about spiritual laws and wicked living. I'll give you two such examples. Proverbs 20. Proverbs 10.27 The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. Psalm 55.23 But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. So this is the principle, same as in the fifth commandment. Children, honor your father and mother so that you may live long on the earth or in the land the Lord your God is giving you, that this is the first commandment with a promise. Meaning that children, if you disobey your parents, you will disobey other people. You'll disobey your teachers. You'll disobey your earthly rulers. You'll disobey all kinds of people if you're disobeying your parents. That they they go together. And all that to say that with the wicked comes judgment. Their lives are much shorter. Perhaps some of you don't know because our news sources, they don't want you to know these kinds of things. Think about something as simple as life expectancy. A typical man in the United States is supposed to live into his mid to upper 70s. And for women, supposed to live past 80 Low 80, something, 82, 83, something like that. And they talk about how with medical technology that this just gets higher and higher. But you realize that this is describing a heterosexual married man, a heterosexual married woman. If you talk about a divorced man, his life expectancy drops significantly. And then when you start talking about other groups, that life expectancy goes lower and lower. No one wants you to know that. Because the world is trying to deny this very principle. It denies the principle that wickedness leads to, leads to a short life because that's part of the first step in getting to the place where wickedness leads to eternal damnation. You understand that, that, that line of reasoning there? The world wants to stamp out this idea of, hey, this man is dead because of his bad choices. The world's always saying, hey, that man died because of someone else's bad choices. That man died because someone else made bad choices for him. Always blaming somebody else. And when you think about these laws, it's amazing what the world can do. If they want you to be a saint, they'll present you as a saint. And they can take the best of people and present them in the worst light. you believe that? Here, the author is concerned with this. God is sovereign. He controls all things. The second, the spiritual laws about wicked living. People who live wickedly live short lives. And here, the author comes in at verse 15 and says, Hey, listen. I can prove that one of those is at least wrong. Verse 15, In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. You see, someone who lived righteously, but he lived a short life. And then there's a wicked man whose life was long and prosperous. And he saw his family, his descendants, even to the third and fourth generation. 
We have examples of this, even in the scriptures. Who lived between Cain and Abel? It was Cain. Cain who was wicked. Abel was righteous. Abel died at the hands of his wicked brother. You look at, in the history of of Israel, you have King Josiah, who was the young but the righteous king. And he died young. And then you have in the New Testament, Stephen, who died a martyr because he preached before the council of Jewish leaders and they appreciated not his message. We wonder what not Stephen had his death wish. Seems like he pulled no punches. He didn't pull his blows to these men. He wasn't afraid of death, so to say. A wrong conclusion is that God is not sovereign. If, there, if He was, then there'd be no exceptions to the rule. And perhaps, as you think about the people who are righteous and died young, because of these horrific diseases taken from their families, because of these accidents, suddenly a car accident completely crushed. And in your heart and in my heart, we look at that and we're tempted to say, these are glaring injustices, God. Where are you in all this? And perhaps we're tempted to say, well, since we can't explain it, we're better off to say that God was not in control of all of these things, all of these events. Don't go there. Don't go there. The glaring injustices, so we say, they, they, irk, they irk us. But then, when you start to think about how this verse 15 applies even to our hope in Jesus Christ. In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Let's turn this back to the Gospel. Jesus Christ the righteous, condemned by God. If there's any man righteous, he is Jesus Christ. We talk about perishing. This is damnation. What did Jesus receive other than the judgment that we, his people, rightly deserve? If there's any man righteous, he is Jesus. His life was cut short. And if there's any man who's wicked... In comparison, it's you and it's me. And not only do we see our lives prolonged, we have in Jesus Christ eternal life. It's not just 80 years or 100 years, and maybe you don't get that. It doesn't matter. What matters is that you and I who are wicked in comparison to Jesus Christ, we have eternal life. Because He is the one who suffered on behalf of sinners. And these promises we receive by Him through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not works. It's not good things we've done. It's not because we tried really, really hard. Some people will say, no thank you. I'm, I'm going to do it on my own. And yet we're told, every one of those will fail. When you think about the promises of the good news. Romans chapter 9. That the Gentiles did not pursue righteousness as if it were by works. They pursued it by faith and they received it. And that then you have the Jews who didn't arrive at that same righteousness because they pursued it by law. 
And so here, you and I ought to understand. However irked you are when you think worldly righteous people had their lives snuffed out, Jesus is far more righteous. There is no righteous person if Jesus is not righteous. Jesus indeed is righteous. And that his life came to an abrupt end because it was God's design planned by the Father that Jesus would be the one who would bear the sins of his people. And that you and I who lack righteousness can obtain that perfect righteousness in our Savior Jesus Christ. So this is the first point, the truth of God's sovereignty. We have the second point, two extreme responses to God's sovereignty in verses 16 through 18. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. So, what do you do when you see these exceptions? What do you do when you meet these people who are the most godly people you've known in your lives, but their lives are short, they're cut short? The false conclusion is that God is not sovereign. He doesn't have control over the events of life. That's the wrong conclusion. Exceptions to the rule do not abolish the rule. God is the one who makes exceptions to the rule. There's two wrong responses. Verse 16. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Is it even possible for a sinful man to be righteous, let alone overly righteous? It's not possible. Here, I think what the author is saying is that someone who desires to establish his own righteousness, someone, we're told in Matthew, that he who prays or he who fasts does it before men, and twice it says they have received their reward in full. So, uh, we would, there's a word for that affectation. And here it's doing things to be seen by others and approved by others. So it's saying, don't be overly righteous. Perhaps another way we ought to understand this is if someone's saying, you know what, let me try to be good so that God doesn't bring judgment upon me for my sins. But you realize that that will come to failure because God brings difficulty into the lives of His beloved people who are faithful to Him so that they might become more holy. That God might refine This is part of our sanctification. That uh, we aren't refined by the ease of life, we're refined by the difficulties of life. When you think about the the overly righteous that we would not be overly righteous and not miss the good news of the gospel. That when we are overly righteous, we think we're too holy for God, then we miss 
our own shortcomings and sins. We don't see our need for a Savior. And what is the end result when someone attempts to be overly righteous? The question there, why should you destroy yourself? The end, res- the end result is pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Self-destruction is, is the end result there. The wrong response number two. In verse 17, Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? The other extreme, instead of trying to be a goody two-shoes or try to be better than everyone else in self-righteousness, the other extreme is that you realize you fail every day and this causes you to give up the race altogether. The throw in the towel, however you want to call it. Perhaps we also ought to give this caveat, this idea of a little bit of wickedness, a little bit of foolishness are in some ways acceptable. That's not not what the author is saying. That in our culture, we understand this to mean everything in moderation is okay. Is that even a biblical concept? Here, saying it's not. A little bit of sin... A little bit of foolishness. No, no, none of that is acceptable. The Greeks and the Romans understood this. They talked about it as the golden mean. It's It's not a biblical concept. At least not in regards to sin and wickedness. The manifestations of this wrong response we find in things such as lawlessness. That when we just throw out the law, hey, Jesus... Jesus paid for our sins and He set us free from the law so we, we should just do whatever it is that we want to do. We should live how we want to live. This is, this is just doing what feels good to me. Ignoring God's law. It's being free-spirited. Following the ways, the values, the standards of the world. Because at least you'll have a lot of company. But the warning that we have there is the expected outcome is before your time. Why should you die before your time? This is the warning. If you're going to say, I'm going to let loose and live life to its fullest and live how I want to live, not how my parents have taught me to live, not how uh, God commands me to live, there's going to be a wicked outcome and a short life. My mother-in-law was talking to Melissa and me and she was sharing about how she saw some of Melissa's friends that she knew from high school. And these are the people who don't really move far away. And she describes them as, I saw this person and they, they, really, uh, they really let loose, so to say. They, they let loose, meaning they stopped taking care of themselves. They looked disheveled, right? Uh, the man, he just pigged out to the buffet and gained 100 pounds. And, and she describes this, oh, he looked horrible. He looked horrible. He just let himself go. But you think about how bad that would be for someone just to give up. Physically. Right? Suddenly this guy, he, you know, he, 
He has two double chins, or whatever it might be. He looks horrible. And you think about how bad that would be physically. But how much worse would that be spiritually? That our decisions have an effect on our lives. Our our decisions have an effect on our our well-being, our mental health. All these things are affected. You know, people often ask, well, uh, how is your mental health? But they're not asking the question, how is sin affecting the quality of your life? People don't want to talk about that. They don't want to talk about sin. And so we have, on one hand, being overly righteous. And on the other hand, being overly wicked. And the author here is saying, avoid both of those. There in verse 18. It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. So we ought to fear God then. And fearing God should lead us to obey the Lord, that we ought to obey His word. We ought not to think, you know what, if I try hard enough, if I obey well enough, then I will earn God's favor. Rather, we ought to say, we fear God, because He proves Himself great. He is the righteous God who forgives sin. Who else can forgive sin but Jesus alone? And that when He freely offered us eternal life through Him, through His perfect sacrifice, through His perfect life, that fearing God and obeying Him is the proper response to what Jesus has earned for us already. That we ought to say we fear God. That we do it joyfully. Lord Jesus, my life belongs to you. Your life belongs to Jesus. And that we live now exactly how he wants us to live because he bought us at a great price. And that when we look at his sovereign control over all of our lives, that we should be trusting him wholeheartedly. Every detail of your life and mine is controlled for our good and for his glory. That we ought to rejoice always, not just on the nice sunny days, not just in the days of prosperity, but in the difficult days, in the bad news, in the horrible diagnoses. And that we ought to obey his word all the time. And that we trust in him that when he calls us home, he will bring us home. And until then, we continue on in this life, not giving up, because we are living for His glory, trusting in His goodness that He provides to us and shows to us every day. Will you go to our God together?